Open up your Bibles, please, to Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus said again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We are continuing the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think Jesus has been radical in his teachings up to this point, uh, just sit back and uh, you'll be blown away again by this teaching. Not that it's me that will blow you away, but Christ's words. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with a movie called The Princess Bride. Um, I got the privilege of just watching it about a week ago. Um, Justin let me borrow it. Um, And as you can tell from this coming example, that movie has made a profound impact on my soul. Um, A poor farm boy named Wesley in the movie uh, falls in love with Buttercup, um, the girl who lives on the farm. But Wesley is too poor to marry Buttercup. So he must travel far away across the sea to seek his fortune in order for him to have enough money to marry her. So so the whole movie is Wesley trying to find his way back to Buttercup after traveling across sea. Now this Princess Buttercup gets captured by a band of traveling circus performers, or so they say. Wesley then faces an inconceivable amount of resistance trying to rescue her, because if he didn't, it would be a boring movie. But in one particular scene, when Wesley is trying to find his way back to Princess Buttercup, he has to get past a Spanish swordsman named Inigo Montoya. That's my best Spanish accent, in order to find his true love. But but before he fights Inigo, he must first climb the cliffs of insanity. Wesley is climbing up these rocks, and he gets stuck near the top. And Inigo's up there waiting for him. And Wesley looks up and says, uh, a little help here. Um, but Inigo naturally uh, doesn't want to help him because he's about to fight him. But then Inigo realizes that he hates waiting. He's very impatient. So Inigo says, uh, I promise I will let this rope down to you, and I, I won't kill you until you reach the top. Which Wesley responds, that's very comforting, but I'm afraid you'll just have to wait. And Diego says, I hate waiting, and begins to walk away. But then he says, can I throw this rope down to you and help you? I'll give you my word as a Spaniard. And, Diego, and then Wesley responds, um, I've known too many Spaniards. That won't help. So Diego says, uh, is there anything else I can do? And Wesley says, nothing comes to mind. So Diego, being impatient, wanting to fight Wesley as he's helping him up this cliff, says... I swear on the soul of my father, Domingo Montoya, you will reach the top alive. Wesley concedes and says, throw me the rope. So, in this story, Wesley does not trust Inigo, the Spanish swordsman, until Inigo swears by the soul of his father, Domingo Montoya, the one thing that he knew was most precious to Inigo, the swordsman. So, when he finally believes in what he's oathing to or swearing to, He says, fine, throw down the rope. I'll trust you. I trust that you won't cut the rope halfway when I'm going. So, although it's a humorous example, similarly, in Jesus' time, the teachers of the law were very corrupt, and they were misleading God's people and leading them astray. They were hypocritical and untrustworthy. And because they couldn't be trusted, just like Inigo the swordsman, they used vows and oaths and fancy religious language to sound like their words had more weight and authority than they really did. When when really they were just laying heavy burdens on the people with a bunch of do's and don'ts, instead of giving them the life-giving, liberating message of the gospel. So Jesus comes along, here in this passage in Matthew 5, and he not only corrects the Pharisees' twisted interpretation of the Old Testament, but he's also calling us as kingdom citizens to a higher standard, not to merely uphold the Old Testament code of keeping our vow, 
but he cares about our heart and the internal motives of even taking oaths in the first place. So Jesus is using the same pattern here with oaths as he used with murder and adultery in the previous passages. He's taking it to the heart level. He's ratcheting it up a notch. Um, he says, I care about your character as a Christian. And, and your character should be such, uh, it'd be so, should be so trustworthy that you don't need to make an oath because your word should have integrity by itself. But much like in the previous passages in the sermon, if we don't study what Jesus is actually saying here very carefully, we can get sideways. And so I would like to pray now that God would give us clarity and wisdom for this passage. Um, Father, um, what you have to say here is very profound. Um, and we know that if there's any misunderstanding, it's because of our um, sinful fallen minds. So I pray that you open up our understanding this morning to see what Jesus is not saying and see what he is saying clearly. And we can live in accordance with that in your name. Amen. So this morning I want us to look at four things. First, what Jesus isn't saying in this passage. Second, why we make oaths. Third, how we let our yes truly be yes. And fourth, the ultimate oath made to us. So first of all, what isn't Jesus saying in this passage in Matthew 5? Like I said, the Sermon on the Mount has to be one of the more famous passages of Scripture, but also one of the more misinterpreted passages of all time. So at first glance, this passage about oaths in Matthew 5 might seem pretty extreme coming from Jesus, which is good because, to some extent, the things he's saying here are extreme. Um, But sometimes we can misunderstand that. So when I read here in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, um, do not make an oath at all, maybe on the first reading, my inclination is to think, does he mean that I shouldn't ever take an oath in a courtroom? Or was the vow I made to my wife when I married her, was that wrong and sinful too? And it seems like Jesus is leaving no room for making oaths at all. Um, that's on the first initial impression sometimes. So is he saying that? And the short answer is no. Jesus is not saying here that all oaths are evil. Now, some sects of Christianity interpret it this way. Some of the Quakers and some of the Anabaptists, you may hear in the news, they will not take an oath even in a court of law. Um, And they've gotten in some trouble for that. Thinking that they are um, upholding the biblical standard, really they are kind of misinterpreting the context. So, So the short answer is no. Jesus is not saying no to all and every oath here. Um, But it sounds a lot like he is. So so stick with me for a second and let me explain. When we examine all of scripture and see the context, um, we'll see that Jesus is not saying for us to not take any oath. Um, The first thing we have to understand is that God permits oaths in the Old Testament, even in his name. In Exodus 22, 10-11... Uh, it says, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or a beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away, without anyone seeing the crime happen, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. So we see here that God has commanded that in the, in the case where no one is witness, an oath is actually necessary and helpful in determining the outcome of this case. Um, the oath is given so that people will see how solemn and serious this court case is and so that they wouldn't be easily um, you know, led to lie in the, court, in the court of law. So that's one case in the Old Testament. And the other is we see in Deuteronomy 10.20, um, God is commanding his people to swear by his name. It says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. In this case, people are pledging their allegiance to God by swearing by his name. Instead of swearing by the name of Baal or another false god, they're swearing by the name of God, um, pledging their allegiance to him. And so those are two examples from the Old Testament. Um, Of course, it's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament also, we see Paul the Apostle swearing by God's name as well. For example, in Romans 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayer, asking that somehow by God's will I may, know at last, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 
And we know that he uses God as his witness to show and to make it certain to the Romans who he's writing the letter to that he really has a desire for them, to come to them, to see them, and he's praying for them. So he, he calls upon the name of God to ensure the truthfulness of his claim. Uh, Paul also does this in a similar way also in the books of 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philippians. So it's not just an isolated incident. And in addition to Paul... To cap it all off, Jesus himself consents to an oath made in the name of God at his own court trial. We read in Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God... Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. So notice that Jesus remains silent when the high priest is talking to him until the high priest makes an oath by the living God. So Jesus didn't say, You mustn't speak like that high priest. But instead, he regarded the oath as legitimate. And it was not only when the high priest solemnly swore by the living God, um, but it was when Jesus or was it when Jesus acknowledged the seriousness of the issue um, and the oath in the court of law that he decided to speak. So, by examining scripture, we see that there are times when taking an oath is not merely permitted, but encouraged and sometimes commanded. So what then do we do here with Jesus' radical teaching when he says, do not take an oath at all, here in the Sermon on the Mount? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Of course not. We must go back to the context of the Sermon on the Mount and look at the Jewish people and how they are oriented and how they operated in that day and what Jesus was truly speaking out against. We must ask, what was the, the purpose of oaths in the first place? Well, to answer that, oaths were designed to encourage truthfulness or to make truthfulness more solemn and sure. But unfortunately, by Jesus' time, the Jews had built up an entire legalistic system around the Old Testament teaching. So they had taken the law of Moses, and they had added to it, and they had, in a sense, twisted it to mean what they wanted it to mean. Um, From D.A. Carson's commentary, he tells us, In the Jewish code of law, called the Mishnah, there is an entire book given over to the question of oaths, including detailed consideration of whether they're truly binding or not. For example, one rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem... The oath isn't binding. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, it is binding. See how much they've, they've uh, perverted and twisted the teaching. They've, they've taken it down to semantics and said, oh, well, you know, I really don't have to keep my word because I swore by Jerusalem. And so the, they, they get really nitpicky about it. Um, so the whole oath-making process that was meant to be something sacred and solemn had been perverted into man-made rules. And it turned into a way that you could get away with lying and deception if you wanted to. So oaths really didn't serve the purpose they were made for in the first place, um, to promote truthfulness. Um, But instead, now the Pharisees had twisted them, and a lot of Jewish people at the time had twisted them, to promote their own deceit. So oath-making had turned into justification for lying. And Jesus will not allow this broken system into his new kingdom. In a sense, what Jesus is doing here is saying, okay, you guys want to play games with your oaths? You want to play word games here? Well, then fine. I'm going to tell you then, it's better not to take an oath at all. Period. I'm going to take it away. I mean, if you're going to mess with the system that was good and put in place, I'm going to tell you better not take an oath at all. Because Jesus is interested in truthfulness. So he proclaims, do not take an oath at all. Jesus expects kingdom citizens, including us this morning, to live lives of such integrity and honesty that oaths are never necessary in our everyday speech. So Jesus' point is not that it's wrong to swear in the courtroom. That's what he does himself. And his point is not that it's wrong to call God as a witness to help someone see that you're telling the truth. That's what Paul does. So what should we not do? We should not use oaths as a way to look like we are telling the truth when we're not. We should not use oaths to our selfish advantage. So the conclusion here from this passage for us as Christians 
living here in California in 2012, based on this scripture, the conclusion for us, what do we take away, is that oath-taking must be restricted. But there are certain solemn, vital occasions when it is right and legitimate to make an oath, like when you're in the court of law, or when you're binding yourself to the lifelong covenant relationship to your wife or spouse. Or when you, like Paul, are trying to help someone see that you were telling the truth in a very, um, in a very solemn, meaningful way. By no means are oaths to be taken flippantly or to be said flippantly and to be part of our everyday speech. By no means are we to use oaths to deceive, like I said. Well, maybe you don't struggle with this problem very much. Um, and it was something that I definitely struggled with um, before I became a Christian. I, I would swear to God in almost, any, in almost everything I said, wanting people to make sure they believed me. Um, but maybe, maybe we in this room don't struggle exactly with that problem. But let's peel back the exterior of making sinful or rash oaths and spend some time looking at the heart behind why we make oaths. And I think you will find that this lesson Jesus is teaching is actually very appropriate and applicable to you in your life. So the second point, why we make oaths. Is it simply bad habit we form? Or is there something deeper going on in our hearts? We know from scripture that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we swear or take an oath, we are actually dealing with a real heart issue here. It's not just an accident or a habit. Um, The two main reasons we make oaths is primarily because we want to use God and we want to use man. So to get some insight into how we do this, let's look at two examples from Scripture. First, we'll look at a man named Jephthah from Judges chapter 11. Jephthah, to give you a little background, was a judge who ruled um, over Israel um, in a time where they were greatly oppressed by the neighboring tribes. And Jephthah came alongside um, his people to lead them into battle and to actually deliver them from the surrounding tribes. Jephthah is known as a mighty uh, warrior and a great leader. And he was actually known as one of the better judges. He even made it into Hebrews 11 in the the great cloud of witnesses. Um, But although Jephthah may have been one of the better judges, um, the tragic part of his life is that before the battle against the Ammonites, against one of the the foreign people who were oppressing them, before the battle, he made a very rash and stupid vow. We see in Judges 11, 30-31, Jephthah says, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering." Then the Lord enables Jephthah to go and win the battle against the Ammonites. And when he comes back home, the first thing to come out of his door is his only daughter. And then it says in verse 35 of Judges 11, And as soon as Jephthah saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot... Take back my vow. From there, it is unclear whether Jephthah did the right thing and didn't burn his daughter, or he went through with the vow foolishly. We, we don't know. Um, but the more important question to ask is why in the world would this man of God take such a rash vow in the first place? Jephthah made an oath for the same reason many of us make oaths today. Because he was relating to God out of false religion instead of faith. Let me explain. Even though God had helped Jephthah defeat enemies in the past, when it came time for battle this time, Jephthah really didn't believe that God was faithful to help him and give him the grace needed to defeat the enemies. So Jephthah did what many of us do when we are in times of despair or anxiety. He said in his mind, He panicked and said, I have to do something for God in order for God to do something for me. In his faithless heart, he turned God into a cosmic vending machine. What do I mean by that? Instead of Jephthah seeing God as someone he could trust and love and worship, 
he saw God as someone he could use. Maybe if I just put an oath as a coin into this vending machine and press B3, I'll get out a victory and also maybe some Twinkies too. I don't know. That's how he was relating to God as this cosmic vending machine. Um, And he said, okay, God, I don't believe that you're going to help me, so I need to to do something for you first. I I promise that I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. Because he knew God liked sacrifices. Of course, Jephthah thought it was going to be an animal that come out. He, He didn't realize or even anticipate the thought it could be his daughter. So it was a foolish and a very rash vow, and one he did not need to take. Um, does this sound familiar at all? When we put it in our modern-day terms, God, please help me get this new job. And if you do, I promise I'll give more than 10% of my paycheck to you. Or, God, please help me through this test. I don't have time to read right now, of course, but I will study my Bible every day once I pass. Or even more subtle than that, We overcommit ourselves, we overcommit to people, ministries, even good causes at times, because we think the more we do for him, the more he will do for us. But God will have none of it. He will not be bargained with. Unlike every other religion which says, you must work in order for God to bless you, you must perform and you better not mess up, Christianity is the exact opposite, in that it says, grace is a free gift. And you can receive it through faith, even though you don't deserve it and you didn't earn it. We must remember from Matthew 20, 28, when Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to serve, um, came not to be served, but to serve, rather, and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to serve, um, not needing us, not needing us to do things for him in order to get our blessing. Um, So the first reason why we make oaths, oftentimes, is because we, like Jephthah, wrongly believe that God will love us more or give us what we want if we offer him a deal. But please don't do that. Uh, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 7, 7 that if we ask, it will be given to us. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be opened. If there's something in your life that you, that you want right now, that's godly desire, don't barter, but come to God humbly asking that his will be done. And he will either give it to you Or he will give you something better, even if that means depriving you of that good thing so that you can get the greatest thing, which is God himself. So, the first reason, um, oftentimes, why we make oaths is because we want to use God. The second reason is because we want to use people. Uh, We make oaths because a lot of times we try to impress others with our sincerity and reliability to try to gain their acceptance so that we can get our way. As we see in this passage from Matthew 5, the Pharisees were notorious for this. They would make oaths swearing by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by their own life, so that others would think that what they were saying had importance and weight. I like how Eugene Peterson phrases this in the message. His version of this passage, Matthew 5, says... You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk, saying, I'll pray for you, and never doing it, or saying, God be with you, and not meaning it. Don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. So when Jesus says, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, part of why we shouldn't swear by these things is that all of creation is God's handiwork. It all belongs to him. So when we swear either by our grandma's grave or on a stack of Bibles, what we're doing is we're indirectly blaspheming, because we're swearing by what is God's, what is rightfully his. Um... And Jesus is passionate about the honor and glory of his Father's name, and he will not have it cheapened. The the weighty name of God should should evoke awe, fear, and worship from us, and not be used in trivial or deceitful ways. Um, So in the process of trying to add that sincerity, um, a lot of times um, we're actually doing the opposite, and we're showing others that our integrity and what we're saying is cheap on its own. It's cheap. Just like... Sometimes you'll, go, you'll drive down the road and you'll see how a used car lot has a big inflatable gorilla in front 
to bring customers in. We do that when we make oaths because we're trying to trick people's judgment so that we can get what we want from them. They want, we want to bring them in and, and make them feel at ease, like, oh, I'm coming for the gorilla, but really I want to send you, a, you know, an old clunker. <laughs> we, we put up that smoke screen and, and we, we go past people's judgment with oaths. And this is not how Jesus expects his kingdom citizens to act. So then, how does he expect us to act? What can we learn from this passage so that we're not using people or we're not using God, but instead we're loving them as Jesus did? Well, I think we find our answer into how we should act in verse 37. Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Which leads us to our third point. How do we let our yes be yes? And what are the practical, practical implications of this popular Christian saying? To illustrate the teaching of how to let our yes truly be yes, I have another example from The Princess Bride. In the movie, the farm boy Wesley, in love with a girl named Buttercup, we already talked about, um, Wesley has no money for marriage, so he, he moves across sea to find his fortune. Um, but before he moves across sea, he has a, a final encounter with his love, Buttercup. And she says to Wesley, I fear I will never see you again. And Wesley says, of course you will. And she responded, what if something happens to you? And Wesley said with his long blonde hair blowing in the wind, hear this now, I will always come for you. And she says, how can you be sure? To which he replies, this is true love. You think this happens every day? Then he takes his bags and leaves. And the rest of his, the movie is his quest to remain faithful to that promise he made her, to remain faithful to his word, and to find his way back to Princess Buttercup, even if it means fighting a Spanish uh, swordsman named Diego Montoya, wrestling a giant, or outwitting a man who makes Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates look like morons. Wesley's undying love for Buttercup fueled his passion to remain committed even when it wasn't personally convenient for him. I'll say that again. Wesley's undying love for Buttercup fueled his passion to remain committed to, the, to her, even when it wasn't personally convenient for him. So the heart of what Jesus is preaching here in this section of the sermon is that we as kingdom citizens should live lives of integrity and commitment so that there's no reason to make an oath. We should simply be able to respond to people saying yes or no. Or if we have made a commitment and said yes to someone, we should keep our word, um, even if it's inconvenient for us at times. So you, may, so you may be asking me at this point, well, Kurt, are you saying that I can never say maybe again? <laughs> no. Let me explain. Jesus is not saying that if your friend asks you to go skydiving, it's wrong for you to say, maybe, let me ask my husband. Because in the context of this passage, Jesus is primarily not, he's not saying that we should be robots and only respond in binary, one or zero, yes or no, to any invitation or question we get. The bottom line of what Jesus is saying is that when we say yes, or when we say no simply to someone, that's exactly what it should mean. And adding vows on top of that, or oaths, to our words, opens, up, opens us up to the influence of Satan whose desire is to trap us and compromise our integrity. Satan wants to make us fools and liars like him. So, where we do start violating this passage isn't when we honestly don't know if we can make a commitment and we tell someone, maybe, let me get back to you. Instead, you start violating what Jesus is preaching here when you get in the habit of deceitfully responding to people, saying, um... Maybe, when, you're really just, when you really know the answer is no, and you're just saying maybe to not offend that person, when you're being deceitful. When you know the real answer is, no, I know for a fact that I cannot go skydiving because I'm pregnant. Or, when you say, yeah, I swear I'll go skydiving with you after I have my baby. When, when you swear to something in the future, without knowing for certain or not whether you'll be able to fulfill that commitment, 
um, that's when you start to violate this command. Who knows, maybe after becoming a mother, you might change your mind about skydiving. Maybe you might become a little more risk-adverse. I don't know. Um, It might not be the smartest thing to do. So one way I have seen Christians um, kind of get around this or try to stay faithful to what Jesus is commanding here is when someone asks them or invites them to something, um, they will say, okay, I'll, I'll make it there, and they'll finish it with Lord willing. So if I say, well, I see you tomorrow, the Christian who plans to see you, but out of the possibility that something else beyond them might happen, um, they could respond, yes, I plan to see you tomorrow, Lord willing. Now, like any Christian phrase, we can abuse and trivialize this, and it, it too can lose its meaning. But I think that if we say, honestly, the same way we end our prayers in, um, Lord, your will be done, in that same vein, in that same attitude, if we recognize that tomorrow isn't promised, or God may allow a traffic jam to occur, I am not, and we realize that we're not sovereign, um, sometimes it is okay to say, I will meet up with you, Lord willing, if God permits. Let's just be careful not to be Pharisees about it either. And if someone texts you the date and the time for the next Super Bowl party, and they don't punctuate it with Lord willing, let's not judge them quickly. Um, But that is a way for us to recognize, kind of like in the passage when it says, we can't decide if one of our hairs is white or black. Um, We can't swear by that because we are not sovereign. We don't know. Um, So it is sometimes appropriate for Christians to say, Lord willing, this will happen, in order to not make their yes be a no. Um, I do think that making commitments is where we as Christians get in the most trouble. And we're, po- we're really prone to sin, because a lot of us struggle with the fear of man, and we hate saying no to people. For example, I, I recently saw an interview with a funny Christian author named John Acuff who goes on speaking tours around the United States. And he's originally from Nashville, Tennessee. And he was on a a book signing tour in Atlanta. And he was signing books, and a guy comes up to John and says, Hey, John, can you sign my book? And he's doing it. And he says, Hey, you know, I live in Nashville, too. We should get coffee sometime. And John, you know, signing it, says, Oh, sure, yeah, let's let's grab coffee whenever uh, we get back. So, you know, the guy listens to him. And the next day, John, John Acuff flies home to, to be with his family. And he's, he's been away for a week. He's ready to spend time with his family when he gets a call on his phone. And it's that guy. And he's saying, hey, John, good old buddy, old pal. I'm taking you up on that coffee date. Let's go. <laughs> and so John has to humbly confess, you know, man, I'm sorry, but I, I really had no intention to ever talk to you again. <laughs> I was just trying to be polite. And it seems to have backfired. (laughs) Please forgive me. So John concluded this story by saying that he learned that it's much better to be honest and upfront with people by telling them, no, I can't make that commitment right now, instead of leading them on. And and while this story can be pretty humorous, I think that most of us can relate on some level, or similar experiences happen to us probably in our lives. And I think it's important to take away the lesson that even though it might not feel very loving in the moment, it's much more loving to tell someone simply no rather than tell them maybe or yes to appease them for the moment when you know the answer is no. So some of you may ask then, if John made the commitment to this man, shouldn't he have let his yes be yes and stayed committed to it and ditched his family for a coffee date with this man? So some of you might have that question. Okay, if this passage is truly saying I need to be committed to my response to my yes, should have he ditched his family for this man because he said, yes, I will? Which leads me to two very important side notes. While it is good and right for us to keep our commitments, I also want to point out that when Jesus says to let our yes be yes, he is not telling us that we must stay committed to a sinful or a unwise and rash obligation. The heart of why we simply respond with yes or no is truthfulness. But if the thing we said yes to is sinful in nature, or if we wrongly agreed to a commitment in haste, we should simply confess it before God, knowing that it was a sin to make that false commitment in the first place, but realize also that God will not hold us to that vow made imprudently, 
but he expects us to obey Jesus and refrain from making such vows in the future. We see, this, we see an example of this in the life of Jephthah making the rash vow. God would not have wanted him to go through sacrificing and killing his own daughter. We also see this in the example of King Herod, who makes a rash vow um, to Herodias' daughter. And God would not have expected him to follow through and behead John the Baptist. Both of them were rash and, and sinful vows and unwise. So, but the second important side note to that is that same principle that I just said does not apply to covenant relationships, such as marriages. And I want to emphasize the word covenant here. No matter how fast or how foolishly you may have run into your covenant marriage, it is not and it is never okay to break that commitment. An example we see of this is in, in Scripture is not only when God says that, you know, what, what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. Another example we see of this and this covenant relationship that shouldn't be broken um, is in Joshua chapter 9, where um, God has commanded to Joshua to go into the promised land and drive all the foreign armies out. And Joshua has uh, already um, marched around Jericho and the walls have fallen, and he's also uh, driven out another army. And these Gibeonites, this other tribe that's in the promised land, knows that they're next and knows that they're going to be destroyed. So these Gibeonites make a trick. They get, they get really wise. And what they do is they trick Joshua by um, taking bread they have and they make it all crumbly. And they take their clothes and they cut holes in them. And they, they walk up to Joshua. These Gibeonites walk up to Joshua and say, Oh, Joshua, we, we've come from a faraway land, and we are, you know, we're starving, and we are these wanderers. Will you please have pity on us and take us in as your slaves and make a covenant with us? And Joshua, having pity on them, um, says, man, these people are going to starve to death. It looks like they have been traveling from miles and miles away. Yeah, um, you can, we'll make a covenant with you. We're not going to kill you, but you'll be our slaves. But the next day, Joshua figures out that they tricked him. And they weren't people from a far-off land, but they were their next-door neighbors who they should have driven out next and conquered and defeated. So at this point, um, Joshua already made a covenant with them. So it would have been wrong for him to take back his vow and destroy these people. Because he made the covenant relationship with them and joined their tribes, in a sense, um, he doesn't kill the foreign enemy. I mean, he keeps his vow to, to make them stay, to become among slaves. Even though he was tricked into it and it was a rash vow he made, because it was a covenant, emphasizing that word, he, it would have been wrong for him to go back on that. So, these two side notes are actually really important for us to understand. I see a lot of people, um, especially in college and Christians, over-committing themselves in trying to attend... 10 Bible studies and clubs. And once they've committed to the tennis club and the racquetball club and the yearbook club and the 2 a.m. Bible study, they realize that they're in over their head. And that person needs to know that they can repent, recognize that it was sinful and wrong for them to commit to so many things. They can repent and recognize that it's okay to stop those foolish commitments. But at the same time, we must remember that it's not okay to drop covenant relationships. So if someone, no matter how rashly you ran into a marriage or even uh, possibly made a covenant to become a member of a church, then it's a different situation. Um, even, if even if your vow or your oath was rash, um, it is not okay to break that because it is a solemn covenant. This can be a difficult wisdom issue sometimes. So I hope I was clear with those explanations. But if any of you are, need help navigating through any of these situations, if you're going through something like this right now, feel free to ask Pastor Keith or, or me after the sermon um, if you have a situation like this to, to find wisdom into when or when not it is okay to break the covenant. Um, or ultimately, never, you should never break the covenant, uh, or whether the commitment um, is binding or not. Um, the heart, of the heart of the matter we need to take away from that is, um, and what Jesus is clearly saying here is, don't, it's better not to make vows at all. Be very slow and cautious before you make any commitments. Um, so when you read this passage in Matthew 5, um, we realize that it is uh, extremely relevant, and we shouldn't distance ourselves from this teaching so, saying, oh, you know, I've kept my marriage vow. I've never committed perjury. I've never you know, lied in the, in the courtroom. 
So I'm, I'm good on this teaching, Jesus. Because you would be missing the heart of what he's teaching. And although technology has changed a bit over the years, people have changed very little. And this passage is still as cutting today as it was 2,000 years ago. We still struggle with the same sins the disciples and the Pharisees did. Only now we have more advanced and easier ways to commit them. For example, you may not hear people today swearing by the gold on the altar in Jerusalem before they make a promise. But more often, you will see people clicking maybe to an event on Facebook when they know for a fact they cannot make the event. Or you will hear people making vows to change their habits through extravagant New Year's resolutions, but not taking them seriously a month later. How many of us say that we will do things, but instead shirk these responsibilities because it is personally inconvenient um, for us to go through with them? If I personally spend any time reflecting on my own life for a second, I realize that I have fallen way short of of this standard. I'm ashamed of all the times I've said yes to commitments I've made to people and then they've just fallen by the wayside because of my selfishness and my lack of love. We often think that we neglect to follow through with a commitment. When we, when we neglect to follow through with a commitment, that that person will probably just forget or they probably don't really care. Um, or sometimes if we make a commitment to God and then it slowly dies off over a few months, we figure, oh, he, he, he doesn't care either. Um, but really, we need to understand that it's not that he doesn't care. It's, these are actually really big deals. And a commitment or an oath is a, is a very important thing to God and to others. So unfortunately, whether we know it or not, we often categorize sins as the big sins and the little sins. And we put things like murder, adultery, and divorce into the big sins category. And the little sins category that we falsely make up in our minds, sometimes we put things like oaths if we even think that's a sin at all. Um, But what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is taking external laws that people thought, I'm great at keeping these. And he's raising the bar to show them that they may be clean on the outside, but they are filthy on the inside. Not only will murderers and adulterers face the wrath of God on Judgment Day, but also will those who have ever hated a person without just cause, or those who have looked with lustful intent, So it's not whether you did the external action as much as, have you even done it in your heart yet? Which we looked at in the past few weeks. So using that exact same method, Jesus is showing us that the way we make vows is very important to him. Because it is a question of truthfulness and blasphemy. When we flippantly make oaths, we are blaspheming God's holy name and dragging it through the mud. Even if we don't mention God, like I said before, if we swear on um, something that God has created, it's, it's just as grievous to him. Um, because if, if, even if I swear by my own life, my own life doesn't belong to me. Um, so it is offensive to God. Or when we respond to people with, with an oath or a commitment saying yes uh, or no, when we really mean with our actions, or when we respond uh, simply saying yes or no. So another way we can fall into this is like the example I said earlier, when we say yes with our words and no with our actions. Um, when we do that, Jesus isn't saying, oh, you just slipped up there, you know, don't worry about it. Jesus says, when we break a commitment, when we or our words are saying something different than our actions, he says in verse 37 of Matthew 5 that that comes from evil. He says, let your answer simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. And God will have nothing to do with evil. So Jesus is elevating to the heart, um, not just the external thing of whether we keep it or not, but there's, there's a heart problem going on. Um, and there's evil in our heart that needs to be dealt with. So be honest with yourself. Have you ever once in your life said, I swear to God, blaspheming his name? Have you ever been like me or John a Cuff and told someone yes to a commitment when you really knew the answer was no? Or I think most convicting of all, have you ever once in your life said yes with your mouth and no with your actions by breaking a promise or commitment you made? If the answer is yes to any of these questions, the Bible says that you and I are in serious trouble. 
because you have either lied and or blasphemed against a holy God. The Bible says in Exodus 27, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And in Revelation 21.8 it says, All liars will have their portion in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur with the second death. So God, it's not just, so God is so just actually, He's so just that he cannot allow murderers, adulterers, or blasphemers, or liars into heaven. In just the same way that um, when you or I commit one crime, we are guilty, and we are guilty of that crime. The same way if one person just commits only one murder, they should be put in jail. In that same way, if you and I have only committed one of these sins once in our life, or if we've ever gone back against our word, we are similarly guilty before the judge. And what Jesus is preaching from the Sermon on the Mount is that all of us are guilty of these serious crimes. And our conscience speaks to that. If I even think for a second of, of all the times I've made a false oath, where I've gone back on my yes, um, my conscience does speak loudly and testify to it. And our punishment against an eternal God then is eternal hell. Unless there is someone who is willing to pay our fine and take our punishment for us. Which brings us to the fourth point, the ultimate oath made to us. For centuries, God's people looked forward to this man, the Messiah, to take away their guilt and sin. They knew that in order for their long record of sin to be wiped clean, they needed a mediator. They needed someone who could represent them in court because they knew they couldn't stand before the perfectly holy judge. Do you remember how in the temple system, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And that was uniquely where the presence of God resided in the Old Testament, in this Holy of Holies. And he would walk in, and he would make sacrifices for the whole nation of Israel. That was the high priest's job. So, the good news for us is that while... The high priest of the Old Testament did the work once a year, but the work was never finished. People kept on sinning, and and sin continued to fill up God's cup of wrath. And the good news is that we don't have a human high priest, but we have Jesus himself, who is fully God and fully man, who has become our high priest. And it's his job to offer sacrifices to cleanse our sin. And the good news is that God has made an oath to his people of old and also to us this morning. He has swore by his own name that he will send a high priest. And he swore by his own name so that we could have absolute confidence in his promise that he will send a Messiah. And that he will make a sacrifice once and for all to cover all of our sin. We read about this oath in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. It says, For people swear by something greater than themselves. (coughs) And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. (coughs) So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the oath set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We re- so we read here in this passage from Hebrews 6 that God made an oath to send Jesus as our high priest, as our forerunner into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. But not to be blessed, but to be sacrificed himself and condemned and have his blood shed upon a cross that was meant for you and me. Jesus, being completely God and completely man, was the only man ever, ever to live a sinless life. That means he never lied, nor blasphemed, he never had to make an oath, and his yes could always be counted as a yes. 
And as our high priest and our representative before God, he offered himself up, taking our punishment in our place, so that we, in exchange, could get his perfect, spotless record. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. He rose from the grave, showing that death was defeated, giving us the true hope and the steadfast anchor of knowing that we can now be right with God, restored to him, no longer in fear of his punishment, but now able to draw near as beloved children. Think about this message of the gospel. I know that you may be used to hearing it every week, but pray right now that God would give you fresh ears. Because the worst thing that can happen is that we grow calloused or cold to, this, to the best news we can ever hear in our entire life. So listen closely to this gospel message. Because of our lying and God-belittling oaths, Our punishment against the eternal God is eternal hell. But out of his grace, kindness, and mercy, God made the perfect oath to punish Jesus as our high priest and representative so that his justice and grace could be shown. And so that you and I could receive Jesus' sinless record. So let me make this loud and clear. Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount are not self-help lessons to try to make us work harder They are lessons that make us reflect on how much we've failed and force us to cry out for a Savior. And it's only then that we've been wrecked on the inside, completely humbled, and know that it's only through Jesus we can have a relationship with God, now and in heaven. It's then when we as kingdom citizens, with new hearts, are actually able to live out these commands. And it's the kingdom citizens, now that have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, who have the power to love others so much that they won't need to make oaths. They won't be trying to use others or manipulate them or use God. And it's kingdom citizens who see God as a loving father and know that they don't need to barter with him. I don't need to swear something to God in order for him to love me. I can simply approach him as a father now, knowing that he loves to give his children good gifts. Knowing that that I can't approach him and that he loves me now through the blood of Christ. And it's kingdom citizens that can let their yes be yes and that can stay faithful to our commitments we make in this life because we have a Savior who who never gave up on his commitment to us, even when it wasn't convenient for him. God, I thank you for your word this morning. Um, Lord, I thank you that you, Lord Jesus, When you faced the greatest resistance, when you faced death, Lord, you sweat drops of blood. You asked if the cup would would pass, but God said, no, my plan is to have you go to a cross instead instead of the people. So I thank you, Jesus, for not giving in to the resistance, but pushing through it and staying faithful to your commitment and for dying for us, and for empowering us to be like you now. Um, So I pray that you give us your Holy Spirit this morning, God, so that we can go out into the world and be people of integrity, be people of our word that keep our commitments, and be people that do not need to swear by anything, but can simply speak with honesty and truthfulness, knowing that it's you, Lord, uh, the truthful one who has made us new. God, help us understand this teach. Help us understanding understand this teaching rightly this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen.